to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined as usual by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Al-Ajba. Good evening. After the brain, the human eye is the most complicated organ in the body. It is for that reason that a graduating doctor must spend another four years after medical school to become an ophthalmologist. Like many people before I went to medical school, I thought that all eye doctors were the same. In fact, when I was 12 and I got glasses for the first time, it changed my life so much that I wanted to become an optometrist to help others also be able to see better. But then later I learned that optometry and ophthalmology are different professions. And in fact, we're going to have an expert here to share with us those differences. Unfortunately, some states are now passing laws to allow optometrists to do the same types of treatments that ophthalmologists have typically been licensed to do because they have those extra qualifications. And allowing optometrists to do procedures that they're not qualified for can definitely put patients at risk. So today we're being joined by Dr. Lori Barber. She's an ophthalmologist and she's the chair of Safe Surgery Arkansas. She's here to help us understand the differences between eye doctors to help patients know how to protect their vision and their health. Dr. Barber, welcome to the program. Thank you for asking me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Lori, can you start us out by telling us about the training of an ophthalmologist and maybe share your professional journey? Certainly, I'd be glad to. As you two know, the arduous journey of a medical doctor begins in high school. You kind of start leaning towards the sciences. You have to do well in high school so you can do well in college. Four years of college is the general rule of thumb for those of us that go to medical school. And we have to do well in medical school in order to compete for some of the uh, more competitive residencies, which ophthalmology is one of those that take some of the top-notch students in each medical school class. During the time we're in medical school, our training starts small and, and gets huge. I mean, we start out learning the dictionary of medical terms. We start out with uh, anatomy and learning each of the body parts from head to toe, and we learn how to dissect. We start knowing everything about the body. And as we go through medical school, we try to determine where do we want to be? I started out wanting to be a family practice doctor like my father was. But at that time, the family practice doctors were doing less surgery. And I tended to be someone that liked a lot of surgery. I've always worked with my hands, always been a seamstress, knitter, crocheter. My dad actually convinced me to look at ophthalmology. And Ophthalmology has one year of internship doing general medicine, general surgery, dermatology, radiology, neuroradiology. And again, so we're getting a whole body during this time. We're doing surgery in medical school. We're doing surgery as an intern all over the body, you know, making huge incisions in the abdomen and helping hold them open for these surgeons to be able to operate. So our mindset at that point is still a physician, a medical doctor, well-trained to do vast amount of different things. And then ophthalmology becomes more focused. I guess that's a cute little saying for an ophthalmologist. We, we start, <laughs> we tend to focus on the eye. And, but the thing about the eye is that it contains so much information about the rest of the body. 
And if we hadn't had that four years of medical school, there would be so much less that we would be able to help our patients with in the future. The eye is actually an extension of the brain and has different layers, which are brain tissue, actually. It also has muscle tissue and skin tissue. So it's it's kind of an all-in-one. So rather than doing family practice of the whole body, I ended up doing general ophthalmology or comprehensive ophthalmology, which took care of one organ system from childhood to old age. So, so Laura, you did four years of college. What was your major, by the way? Distributive studies. I went to Iowa State University and I did um, zoology. <laughs> now that you're asking me, it's like chemistry, zoology, and biology. Not, wow. So you did four years of college. You did four years of medical school. You did one year of your internship. And then was it another three years of ophthalmology? I actually did three years of college and was able to start medical school a little earlier than some, but um, I did four years of residency. So I ended up about the same as everybody else at that point. We had a four-year program that went to three years, but now they're trying to expand back to four years. And as a comprehensive ophthalmologist, then I became actually assistant professor of ophthalmology at the uh, medical center in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. I became a professor of ophthalmology, actually, by the time I moved to private practice about seven years ago. Training differed from an optometrist training. An optometrist goes to college and then they go to optometry school. Their optometry school is four years where they are trained to take care of the eye. They're actually more trained to take care of vision problems so that the, you know optometry itself, the, the terminology is measuring of the eye. So they're great at glasses and contact lenses and, and um, ha- they have a basis of what other parts of the body might be doing, but basically they are trained in the eye itself. You know, I guess what I'd love to hear about is uh, how has the blurring occurred over, say, the last 20 years or so between when you first, because that's how I think of things when I first came out of school 20 years ago, what were nurse practitioners doing then and what are they doing now? And so I think of that same question, what were optometrists doing 20 years ago when you went in, let's say, to ophthalmology? And then what are you seeing now uh, happen if we can just kind of walk through that time frame? Well, even now of the 50 states, there's only five states that allow any kind of optometry surgical procedures. So 45 of the states still practice about the same level as what the optometrists did when I first got out of residency. However, before that, they weren't even allowed to prescribe medication. And in 1997, they actually came forward to the Arkansas legislator and asked to be able to prescribe anything from the PDR. And that was given to them by legislative decree if they would spend, I think it was 100 hours with with an ophthalmologist in their clinic. And then they could write prescriptions from anything from the PDR. They didn't take pharmacology. (laughs) It was a legislatively decreed ability to prescribe. They started making inroads at that point. Since 97, when they were allowed that, not much has happened in Arkansas, but Oklahoma actually was one of the first states, was the first state that I know of to allow optometrists to do laser procedures on the eye. And then Louisiana and Kentucky kind of fell. And then Arkansas, unfortunately, fell in 2019. Can you tell us what the kind of procedures that optometrists are asking to do or can do in those five states? Sometimes when people hear the term laser surgery, they don't realize that that's actually cutting. That's destruction of tissue. So tell us more about what sort of procedures they're asking to do. 
Well, in Arkansas, I can tell you specifically that they asked to do everything and then they, oh, you know, narrowed it down and negotiated with us. And, and what they ended up getting, even though we said no to each of these procedures, is they ended up getting a laser procedure, which is called YAG capsulotomy. And that's when the, the lens is, sits behind the iris, so the blue part of my eye, the brown part of yours, and we take out the front part of the capsule, we take out the lens, and it's still, you know, it's behind that little pupil. So we're inside the eyeball when we're doing this. And then we put an implant on top of that capsule. Okay. So then later on, sometimes that little envelope will become more cloudy. And we say, okay, your vision's gone down. You're starting to have problems again. And we do a laser capsulotomy. So we're taking a laser, which is a very concentrated point of light or a very, very sharp knife. And we pop open that capsule so that they then have an opening again to where they can see as good as they could prior to right after the cataract surgery. So the laser enters the eyeball, it goes behind the iris and it pops open and destroys a portion of what is part of our eye or an envelope of the eye. Interestingly, specialists that was that came in to testify for the optometrists said that they weren't really cutting in the eye. It was just nudging it a little bit with this laser. And I thought, well, nudging that just goes to, to make show. a hole, a nudge that makes a hole in your eyeball. And that explodes it open. By the way, he isn't doing those. There's very few people that even they're, though they're allowed in these states, few optometrists actually end up doing them. Well, it sounds pretty complicated and scary and like, it's definitely not something you should do unless you really know how to do this or you could, someone could lose their vision or, or worse. Exactly. As you mentioned, the brain is right behind your eye. If, if you slip up with that, you know, I would imagine that would put your brain in danger as well. <laughs> not your brain, but it could put your macula in danger. Yeah. And your macula is the very central part of your vision. So everything that you have that you can see to read or that you can do facial recognition or that you can drive with is part of a very small pinpoint sized area in the back of your eye, in the back of your retina. And if that laser that punches through that capsule actually goes to the back of the eye, then you can damage your central vision. And that has been, it it can occur. And what we do as ophthalmology residents is we sit down and watch it done by an ophthalmology older resident or faculty member. And after we've watched a lot of them, then we sit down and pretend to be doing them. And then we actually do them with a patient and the faculty member right next to us. And we do many, many, many of those before we're allowed to do them on a patient without somebody next to us. What the optometrists have done is actually never done it on a human being. I talked to so many optometrists in in my town most of them graduated from a optometry school that doesn't teach them surgery because it's not legal in Tennessee to do these procedures. But what they determine is that they can do this 32-hour course and buy these people, one of them who, has, who no longer does them, by the way, and then they will become experts and they will be able to do this procedure on patients um, just like the ophthalmologist. I don't know if you guys knew about this, but the, unfortunately, I... Yay, capsulotomy is set up in the atrium of the Capitol while this bill is being pushed by the optometrists. And all the legislators get to sit down and and blow a little hole in this fake eyeball. And they realize it's just like a game. It's just something that anybody could do. So then they're convinced that, well, if it's this easy, then it must be okay for them to do this. 
I'm, I'm so glad you sort of said that comment because I, I was going to, I wanted to clarify for people that are listening that most physicians are appropriately scared of the eye. And, and <laughs> I would just say as a pediatrician, you know, so my worst fear is that I'm going to have a kid with a ruptured globe. That's the first thing. And so anytime somebody calls and there's like a, an injury or something that went through the eye, I mean, I, I kind of have to panic a little bit and go through in my mind what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, usually it's something simple, like we just do, you know, it's a corneal abrasion or something that we can handle. But what's amazing is I I would say after 20 years of practice, I'm very appropriately afraid of managing the eye or missing something. And and I do feel like I I probably have missed things because I've had kids that got cataracts early on. So at birth, maybe they had a normal exam. And then somewhere in that first two years, you know, they started having trouble. And it's a very complicated process. You know, a lot of my families will seek two and three opinions before they get operated on because they really want someone who knows what they're doing. So I'm so glad you said that because I think it's so important people understand it isn't that if someone makes a mistake, it'll fix itself. Blindness is at the end of the road. And I think that's something people forget. They think, well, it's just a laser. And, And my second point is sort of about this. You know, LASIK is a great example of where it's become almost like McDonald's, right? You can drive through and get it. And of course, I have terrible eyes. I have a negative seven and a half prescription. Um, and I didn't have any glasses till I was 19. So literally in 20 years, I've gone from zero to kind of negative seven. And, and so I would say people often ask me, why haven't you had LASIK? And I said, you know, I'm terrified. I mean, if I'm blinded for any reason, that's it for me. Right. And we have a legislator here who is actually blind. She was a dentist and she had to retire. She's been very open about what happened. And she had someone who wasn't that experienced that did LASIK. And they've tried to transplant. They've tried multiple things. She is essentially blind. She can't drive herself to the Capitol working as a legislator. And of course, she loved our book because I think she really understood the the consequences of someone who doesn't have good training. And when you tell me that optometrists are doing surgery and they've never done it on one human being, I just, it isn't a game and it isn't blowing into an eye and we're selling something that we can't, or, or we aren't, but those individuals are selling something they can't deliver on. So I guess my question was going to be, what would your, what would be your counter to the legislator who says to you, it's easy. I just did it over there in the atrium. What I tell them is that it's not the same. You know, you have a patient that's breathing you have a patient that is moving, you have a, a lens that looks different in every single person, everybody's eyes a different size, a different shape, their pupils are dilated a different amount. I mean, I, I always still tell my patients these, these are possible risks and complications of this procedure, and, it, and there's never a procedure that has no risks. But optometrists would tell the, their legislators there's no risk to this. And they would say it to us back. Well, why are you worried about them doing that? There's no risk. It's like there's never no risk to eye surgery. You're cutting part of the eye. And the other two procedures that they got laser with, they, they're not allowed to do LASIK in Arkansas yet, but they do it in Oklahoma. And I have heard patients that have been blinded by their procedures there by optometrists. But um, the other two procedures are two glaucoma procedures where it's very intricate. It's even more intricate than the YAG capsulotomy where you actually have to, to treat a very small, tiny area of the eye in order to get the pressure down in the eye. I don't even do that. I mean, I've done many, many, many over the years, but I want the glaucoma person to take those patients over because if something happens during the procedure, I want them to be the ones that can deal with the complications. I'm sorry, but I get people from our 
optometrists that have not even been diagnosed as having glaucoma, that have already lost a lot of their optic nerve, uh, and it's too late, in, and blindness is the end. We only have two eyes. And it's one of the, when we were talking to the legislators and we were in the committee meetings, committee meetings, one of the legislators actually said, well, what are you afraid of? And it's like, well, them not knowing what they're doing. And he said, mistakes? We all make mistakes. I make mistakes, you know. It's like, no, no, no. They just don't understand. It's not something you can take back. Yeah, it's incredible hubris. And to think, you know, how precious your eyesight is. And just if you were the patient and the legislator could say that, but if it was their eyes, I guarantee you it wouldn't just be a mistake. It would be a crisis. And, you know, in the book, we actually pulled an article from ocular surgery news. And there was an ophthalmologist and he was quoted as noting that, you know, really any physician with a medical license could say, Hey, I'm going to practice at the top of my license. We hear that a lot from (laughs) non-physician practitioners and, you know, I'm a family doctor, but, and I have a medical license. So maybe I could just start cutting on people's eyes. I mean, I could, uh, I would get sanctioned by the board of medicine because it's outside of my scope. (laughs) Technically it's at the top of my license. Right. And he mentioned that, you know, ophthalmologists don't, just do any kind of eye procedure. He said for him himself, for example, he's, he's a practice founder and a partner, but he would never do like a retinal surgery because that wasn't his area. And he says, you know, there are procedures you do and procedures you don't do because you want to do the things that you know you're very skilled at because you don't want to make a mistake and you don't want someone to lose their vision, especially if another person has those skills and training. So what is it that is that optometrists are asking for? Why are they asking for this? And how are they persuading legislators other than saying it's it's easy and I can do it? No, anybody can do this. But what rationale are they giving that they need to have these privileges? What they say to the legislators is it's easy. The spokesman for the optometrist said, well, this isn't surgery. This is just a little procedure, a little minor procedure that can be done in their little exam room chair. And and there's no risk involved. And that's what the legislators heard. And the spokesperson's not an optometrist, but that's what the, she told the public, you know, and I came on and said, no eye surgeries without risks. There are no m- minor procedures when you blast into the eyeball or operate on the eyelid. And by the way, they also have, they have laser into the eyeball and now they have scalpel procedures on the eyelids, many of which I don't even do either because the eyelids are critical for our vision as well. What they come at the legislators with is access. It's very similar to all others. It's access and cost. It's easier on the patients to just stay there and let their optometrist, who's their primary care physician of the eye, take care of their problems. And unfortunately, it turns out that even in Oklahoma, where it's legal for the optometrist to do it, an optometrist will see a patient south of, say, Tulsa, and send their patient past Tulsa, where there's many ophthalmologists, to the Native American reservation, where an optometrist will then perform the procedure. So they passed three ophthalmologists on the way there. So it didn't save the patient time. They're being sent to someone that may do four procedures in their whole training, where I did four a day, maybe more during my four years of training. They also claim that it's less expensive and there's been a Medicare data that has proven in Oklahoma that they actually cost more because they do the same procedure over again. It didn't work, maybe because they didn't see the trabecular meshwork that they needed to laser or didn't effectively do the laser on the trabecular meshwork. But at any rate, they do more of them. So it costs more and they are not saving the patient 
mileage or time. Basically, the argument that they're making is that there's not enough ophthalmologists or that some patients can't afford an ophthalmologist. So therefore, let's just let optometrists do what ophthalmologists do. Um, They can take a 36-hour weekend course, and now they can do the same thing as what took an ophthalmologist five years of residency after medical school. But they can do it in 36 hours, and it's no big deal. So it's just when you hear that, it just absolutely makes no sense. And, you know, you start to worry, like when I hear you talk about Native Americans, and I I start wondering, are these the patients who are going to have no choice but to see an optometrist? Because we see that we talk about that a lot in the book, how in many cases, once privileges are given to non-physician practitioners, then that's who underserved populations end up having no choice but to see them. And do you think that's happening where you are? Well, in Arkansas, fortunately or unfortunately, we were able to initiate a referendum in time to put the law in abeyance. So we quickly stepped up. We said, okay, we're going to get these petitioners to sign a referendum that says, or a petition that says, okay, we want to vote on this. The legislators may have made a mistake. They may have gone beyond what was actually right for my eye safety. And we had a record number of people signing petitions saying that they wanted to vote on this. So in Arkansas, it's one of 12 states in the, in the U.S. where Arkansas citizens constitutionally are allowed, it is their right to either shoot down a law or add their own laws with enough signatures and with the votes. So we had the signatures within the whole 100 ophthalmologists in the state of Arkansas. That's total. Most people have more than that in their big cities, I know. But we raised $750,000. So we were ponying up lots of money in order to get this petition signed. We used a professional petition company to do it, which I might not do again because it caused much trouble down the road. But anyway, in record time, we had people saying, well, no, you know, we should vote on this. We should say it's our right to say that what is right for our eyes, what is healthy for our eyes, what could damage our vision. And even if I know the difference, I'm afraid my friends or my family members won't know the difference. So we had the petition up. We went before different secretary of state. Secretary of state didn't count us because they said we didn't have the right number of petitions, but we had the right number of petitions. The Supreme Court told them they had to count it. The secretary of state finally counted it. We were certified. We were on the ballot. Then the optometrists legally came back at us and blamed two of our lawyers one of them for actually doing a felony, which that he did not commit, saying that, oh, let's just try to hide these petition signatures. I mean, it was terrible. It was a lot of legal fiascos. So anyway, we won all those cases. We're on the ballot in November. So we had the vote. You know, everybody's going to get to vote on this. We're going to start up our campaign. Well, another legal challenge came forward from the Secretary of State and from the Attorney General of Arkansas saying that, oh, no, we didn't really get those petitioners properly background checked, even though we had, because we said that we had acquired background checks on them, not that they had passed their background checks. So acquired versus passed were the two differences in those two words. It went to the circuit court. The circuit court said, oh, that was, no, that's okay, because our Kansans are allowed to petition. They're allowed to go up for a vote. This is minimal problem. It's ridiculous. They should be allowed to vote. Well, no, the Supreme Court then came back and said, no, they can't do it. 
So it sounds so, like they were bound and determined to try not to get this on the referendum to get the people to vote. Yeah, I think it's very kind of interesting how this all happened. So is it going to be voted on still or what's the status now? Well, the status is that we didn't we were on the ballot and people came in to vote and they saw it and could vote on it, but it couldn't be counted. So it's not counted. We don't I I don't know if we can demand to say what the count is at some point, but right now the Supreme Court just came out last week and said, oh, never mind. It's okay that you said that. (laughs) So they have vindicated us. We were right, but it's not been counted. So what's your next step now? What do you, I mean, it sounds like this is getting very costly. I mean, you've got all these legal battles and here you are really just trying to advocate for patient safety. What, What can you do now? We don't know. I don't know. Um, it just happened that the Supreme Court came back and said, oh, never mind. <laughs> it, it's okay that the petitions were all good. You know, the signatures were all good. It should have been voted on, but it wasn't. So now what do we do? It's a good question. I've been thinking about that since last week. We we raised over $2 million, most of it within the state of Arkansas. It's never been put to a vote ever in the United States, a scope of practice. So it was the first time it had ever gotten to this point or ever even brought up to this point. So we are very, very successful with everything, including wins in all the court, except for the last one, or the second to last one. And it got swiped, not counted. And now we're back to where, can we go back and count those? I don't know. And that's my question for you. Why, if I can ask, did they take it through a second time? Did the Supreme Court want to look at it again? I mean, it's highly unusual, I guess, in my experience, that they would overturn their own ruling, which seems... Interesting. We had, I had one of the best lawyers that I was able to work with who got us through all these court cases with aplomb. I mean, he was great. And he said, there is a chance we could take this back to the circuit court. We have all this information that says it's ridiculous what they're doing. This is unconstitutional that what they're doing, they're preventing Arkansans from voting on something that they feel strongly about. By the way, 88% of Arkansans on a survey said they would not want a non-medical professional doing eye surgery on them. 88%. Wow. And even if you said, well, what about if it was easier access for you? They said, no, 84% still said, I don't want a non-medical professional doing any eye surgery on me. So if we can just say, you know, non-medical, that's it. Patients are like, don't touch me, but that's not what they think their optometrists are. Right. And that's the problem, I think, is this idea of terminology and education and and what you've got, which is what I think we see all over the country, is this idea of kind of what I think of as a peddler peddling their wares. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not really surgery. It's surgery when the doctor does it. But when a non-doctor cuts you open, it's not really surgery. It's kind of massage. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's this idea that you're just kind of, you know, manipulating things a little. And it's this sell job. And what I find so interesting about the fact that you guys do get to vote publicly on this is I'm hoping you guys are able to kind of keep fighting it because what a great precedent to set across the country that people and patients should be able to make the decision. To me, anyway, that's the one thing I would say of encouragement is just what an amazing precedent to set that the public can vote on scope of practice. And and I really am ready to trust the public. I don't trust politicians. I don't trust legislators. I don't think they care. I don't think your secretary of state cares about patient safety. Your lawyer does and the people do. And so to me, I guess that's what's so inspiring is just that, you know, you guys are actually handing it over to the public to say, hey, what do you guys want? And obviously 88% or more want a medical person to massage 
their eye, the scalpel. To nudge it, to just nudge it. You know, uh, when you talk about, you know, the patients being the ones to make the decision, that's really where I'm at with this whole scope of practice issue, because I think we have to continue to fight because we have to look out for our patients' best interests. So we have to continue these political battles and discussions. But I really feel like we're spending so much time and so much money. And as many people tell me, it's a foregone conclusion. And we see the states go down one after the other. But I think what maybe we got to invest our time and money and effort is going right to patients, communicating with them, letting them know, uh, clarifying misconceptions about what different specialties do, and then also making ourselves as available as possible and uh, showing the empathy that patients are always looking for, which is something that's really important. And I know ophthalmologists definitely do a great job of that because we have to trust you with our eyes. And and when I had my LASIK, I was very scared with having um, my eye held open and somebody coming at me. And, you know, that's a lot of trust to to give to someone. So thank you for what you do. I guess when you guys went out and got all the petitions, that was probably a great way to educate patients and just let them know about what was going on and also your commercials and your campaigns. Do you think that was helpful in getting the message out? I think it helped getting a lot of the message out to people that knew a little bit I think it real that woke them up to say, hey, wait a minute, what happened? The legislator did that? I mean, it didn't even make the newspaper. That people, the public was more concerned about whether their hairdresser was certified than whether their eye surgeon was actually an eye surgeon. And it just got ignored. It was very it was strange, very strange. And it passed. And then we came back and said, wait, I think. People need to look at this. I think the public needs to know about this. And like I said, we had a record number of signees onto our petitions. We got onto the ballot and then it got ignored (laughs) again when the ballot, you know, when we were all voting in November, it didn't count. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if we actually are going to do it again. I, there is a chance we could go forward and do another referendum, but the Big thing about that one is that it put it into abeyance. So it stopped them from doing anything for a year while we were educating patients, you know, while we were doing ads, while we we're getting free press. Whether we could go ahead and continue to do some of those ads, billboards like what were what were done by the providers, I thought that was excellent. Ask your eye doctor, are they an ophthalmologist with an H? You know, are they surgically trained? What is your message to patients? What should they know about when is when should they seek care with an ophthalmologist compared to an optometrist? Of course, I'm biased, but as a comprehensive ophthalmologist, I care so much for my patients and always have. It was my patients coming to me asking me what the heck was going on in the legislature that made me realize that we really had to go and do something. That's why I jumped in kind of midstream there. I think that if you have eye disease, that an ophthalmologist would be who I would recommend. Optometrists are well-trained to do many things. And they did have education for four years, all revolving around the eye. They can pick up things. They do pick up things. But there's also many things that are missed that an ophthalmology resident would not miss. So you would say if they have a medical disease of the eye, say glaucoma or retinal problems, 
uh, corneal issues, if they have a worsening problem, maybe that's not getting better with treatment with their optometrist. And then I would, I would add probably any type of surgical treatment, you would recommend that patient seek care with the ophthalmologist who went to medical school and did a long, long residency. And, and as you mentioned, a very difficult to get into residency, you really have to be top of your class and have a lot of credentials and uh, just be really, really up there to match into ophthalmology. I agree. Yes, I would say that. Well, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Lori Barber, for joining us to discuss ophthalmology versus optometry scope of practice. And if you'd like to learn more about non-physician practitioners, and of course, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at amazon.com and at barnesandnoble.com. We also encourage you to listen to our podcast and subscribe and also check out our YouTube channel. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about joining our fight to protect the patients' rights to have physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, please join our group, Physicians for Patient Protection. You can find us at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks for what you guys do. You, you do a great job. Appreciate you a lot. Thank you. Thank you.